Good morning, Centerway Church. I'm Deidre. I wish I could see all of your faces, but I'm so thankful to be gathering with you online this morning. Welcome to all of you, whether you're on the Sunday morning live platform or watching or listening later on in the week. We're so glad you're choosing to spend time with us today. A very special welcome to those of you joining us for the very first time. We're a mobile church and we do not have a place to gather right now, so we know in this season it may be difficult to visit us, but we trust that even online, you have a sense of who we are and feel at home here. We'd like to make your first visit a little easier, so I'm gonna run through a little bit of information and trust that it'll help you and everyone else know a little about what to expect as we gather. If you're gathered live on Sunday morning, check out the tabs on the online platform. You can share or update your information. You can give, take next steps, find previous messages, share this message. Also, you can also ask questions or request prayer right on the live platform. One of our hosts will answer you privately in a separate chat. If you're watching or listening to this message later, you can do those things through our website. If you need prayer throughout the week, have questions, ideas, or feedback, we'd love to help in any way that we can. Please don't hesitate to reach out. Email us at connect at centerwaychurch.com. Our website has information and resources to help you. There are resources that can help you go deeper into scripture, the scripture that we're studying, like devotionals that you can subscribe to. Um, and if you have kids, there's messages just for them from the same scripture text, so you can discuss it with them and grow as a family. There are two main places on our website to find those resources and more, the messages page and the next steps page. A quick reminder to our Centerway stewards, tonight at 7 is our special meeting via Zoom. You should have received two emails about that, including a Zoom link. And if you haven't, please contact us as soon as possible. Well, Christmas is right around the corner, and we can't wait to celebrate with a special online Christmas gathering. It will be on Wednesday, December 23rd at 7 p.m. We'll host it just like a regular Sunday morning gathering so that you can chat with each other. It will be an evening of music and encouragement. We can't wait to gather together online. Now here's what to expect today. Tiffany will be reading the scripture text for us, Claude will be communicating from the Bible, and then you'll hear some ways to respond in worship. Immediately after the message, you can join us live on Instagram or Facebook as a way to respond through song. Now here's Tiffany with the text for today. Hi, my name is Tiffany and I'm reading Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the, Ger the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, we, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd numbering about 2000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, 
the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had possessed, who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Hello, my name is Claude, and my wife Meredith and I are the lead pastors here at Centerway Church, and I want to welcome you as you join us in the series called Disrupted. Uh, This morning's message specifically is entitled Comfort, Disrupted Comfort. And uh, I'm really excited as we continue in our journey through Mark, specifically the first part of uh, chapter five, as you just heard read. Before I get into the message, I want to share a little bit of of a story with you, kind of the experiences that I have when I get on an airplane. And uh, it's it's somewhat embarrassing if you don't do this. If you do do it, it will be hilarious because uh, you'll have something in, in common with me that I think is kind of random. But when I get on an airplane, I sit down, I get settled, sit in my seat, and the first thing I start doing is evaluating everyone else that starts to get on the plane. I look at them and I think, are they somebody that's about to sit next to me? And I start to get nervous. Like every person that is taller or larger that gets on the plane, I start thinking, oh no, oh no, because there's not a lot of room next to me on an airplane. I'm a rather big guy. And so I think for some reason that if I look away, they won't sit by me. I don't know what the deal is. It never works well. In fact, there's times where, where giants get on the plane and I think, that dude sitting next to me. And sure enough, he comes in and we're both stuck like this. And we're just looking at each other, hating the world. But um, this one time in particular, uh, I sit down on this plane and it was, it was a couple of years back. I don't even remember where I was headed. And it was a smaller jet, two seats on either side. And I go in and I sit down and uh, I have a window seat and I'm looking and every person that gets on the plane, I'm looking away, I'm looking away. There's this tiny little old lady that gets on. I'm like, come on, I'm just staring right at her as if I follow her, right? I'll will her into the seat next to me, you know? And of course that didn't work out. She walks past and this guy gets on and I have to kind of duck when I get on uh, an airplane and he is hunched over and he's turned almost sideways. I'm thinking, oh no, this guy's bigger than I am. He's going to end up next to me. And so of course I start my tactic of looking away and I'm kind of looking around and looking up at him like come on just sit down sit down anywhere sit down go past me go past me and then he does that moment where he goes past and I think sweet you get that sigh of relief then he puts a bag up and you're like oh no he turns around well he ended up across the aisle so I breathe a sigh of relief and I look as the the, um, flight attendant is watching him try to get into his seat and she's kind of laughing as he struggles to get into the seat and uh, she's stuck in between us as she's letting people by. And she's like, I don't know how you big guys do it. You know, I'm like, yeah, thanks. And uh, so she walks away and everybody else continues to get on the plane. And it's a nearly full flight. And uh, she comes back and looks at this ginormous guy across the aisle from me. And she goes, "Uh, excuse me, sir, if if you want to get your stuff and just follow me. And he goes, excuse me? And she goes, would you like to follow me? You know, just get your stuff and and follow me. I'd like to, to show you something. And he goes, no. 
she goes, excuse me? And he goes, no. He's like, you saw what it took me to get into the seat. I had to let somebody else into the window seat. I am not getting up again. And she goes, are, are, you, are you sure? And he goes, yeah, I'm not getting up. It's not happening. I don't know what you need to talk to me about, but I got my ticket right here. And she's like, okay. And so she looks over at me and kind of shrugs her shoulders and says, would you like to follow me? And I go, sure. So I get my stuff and I follow her and she walks me up to an exit seat. And in this exit seat, there's extended leg room. And immediately I feel like, this is incredible. And I sit down, I put my stuff down, I thank her immensely. And uh, I just don't look back at that guy because I'm sure he is just absolutely furious. And uh, the reason I tell that story is because I want to ask this question as we go into the, the message today. The question is this, why does comfort sometimes win over progress? Why does comfort sometimes win over progress? It's so funny, like he, he wanted his comfort so bad in that moment that he missed out on a way better opportunity. We all do it. We all do it. And I think the answer to the question is actually rather easy and yet in some ways embarrassing. You might be tempted to say that, um, you know, that the, the problem is perspective. You know, that if, if this guy just knew, if he just had the perspective, if he just knew that he was going to get a better seat, then certainly he would have disrupted his comfort. And you know what? Maybe in that scenario, you'd be right. But the fact is, perspective doesn't really change our approach to comfort. I, mean, I can prove it to you, right? How many times have you said, I am going to not eat another piece of pie this Thanksgiving? I mean, it's going to be one and done. And then you're sitting there on a nice, comfy, perfect Thanksgiving day, and you just you crush that second piece of pie, maybe a third piece. How many times have you laid in bed and been like, you know what? I'm going to get up and I'm going to go running. Today's the day. And you hit snooze for five more minutes and you're like, I am going to start running next week. You see, we realize that, that the exercise we do, that maybe eating a little better, that it's going to add literal years to our lives. But we choose comfort. We choose a little bit more sleep. Time and time again, even with perspective, we often choose comfort. We choose comfort over progress in our lives. Why is that? Well, I think comfort sometimes wins because it's the path of least resistance. It's that simple, right? comfort. It doesn't, it doesn't disrupt our lives. Comfort allows us to remain where we are. And so get this, not only do we enjoy the comfort that we experience, but we justify the comfort that we're in. We've talked about this before on some level at Centerway, and uh, we say things like this, I deserve this. After the week I had, I deserve to be comforted a little. I deserve this, this indulgence of food. I deserve to be able to sleep a little bit longer. My gosh, come on, don't I deserve a nap? Have you met my kids? <laughs> we say things all the time that just kind of justify the comfort we seek. We say things like, come on, don't I deserve to be happy? Don't I deserve to be happy? We engage in comforting ourselves and justify it to the point that we even start to call evil good. Think about that. We justify our comfort so much so that we begin to start calling evil good. Now you might be sitting there going, Claude, that is, that is a big jump. How in the world did we go from seeking a little bit of comfort to like calling evil good? I mean, doesn't a little 
comfort seeking really mean that, you know, we're just pursuing comfort. It doesn't mean that we're pursuing evil, does it? Sounds extreme, right? Here's what I'm saying. I am saying this, that we're all on a path and we make decisions constantly to either remain on that path or to change course. And maybe from moment to moment, perspective changes our willingness to, per- to pursue maybe a different course, but it doesn't change the fact that we're on a path. No one accidentally arrives at a destination, right? From who your friends are to the, the grades that you get to the schools that you choose if you choose to go to college or the job that you choose after high school if you choose to go into the workforce. You see, all of these are decisions. They're choices that you make. How will you live your life? You can make a million different excuses. You can explain away a hundred different things, but at the end of the day, it's really this tension of comfort versus disruption. Will I allow this disruption to unsettle and unseat the comfort that I'm pursuing. Now I know that in this moment, in this context, it sounds like disruption has a negative connotation, right? But what if, what if our comfort was leading to destruction and being disrupted would lead us to freedom? We don't think about that often because when we're, when we're comfortable, we're just thinking about kind of keeping that comfort. And when we're uncomfortable, we're pursuing comfort. But what if our comfort was leading to destruction and being disrupted would lead us to freedom? You see, I think we as humans look at evil and don't acknowledge it as evil. We say things like, it comforts me. I mean, maybe it's bad. Maybe it's not good for me. It's not evil. But it can't be evil, right? I mean, it can't be evil if it, if it brings me pleasure. Can it really be evil? It makes me feel safe. It can't be that bad, right? I mean, these are all phrases that we say. They're just variations of some form of justification for us to pursue comfort. Now, here's the temptation. If you're sitting there listening or watching, you might be thinking that I'm about to tell you all the stuff that you need to stop doing. (laughs) In fact, maybe you're sitting there and the voice in your mind is like, I get it. I really need to start running or I don't know why I hit the snooze button all the time or the pie wasn't even that good. (laughs) I get it because I know that it's a human tension that that we think, all right, there's some things I need to stop doing, but I'm not going to do that. That's not what this is about, you see, because at best, that would be behavior modification. And at worst, it would be mere religion. Now, I'm not going to talk about what it is that you need to change. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about evil. I'm going to talk about evil because that's what our text is about this morning. And we, we don't know that the decisions exactly that this man made in the story that we're going to pick up, we don't know his actual decisions, but we know that the decisions of his life led him to the place that he's at. We pick up his journey and we're going to talk and learn about evil this morning. Picking up at verse three and going on through verse eight says this, he 
meaning this man, this man that, as you heard already read, a person that's tormented and um, possessed by demons. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Hmm. So we have this, this story. It's a rather detailed story about a man that is demon-possessed, that has an encounter with Jesus. In fact, it's the longest account that Mark really gives to any uh, individual that Jesus interacts with throughout his gospel. And I want to tell you that we can learn a lot about evil from this detailed account. And so I want to go through the journey and I want to think about the context of evil and the way that it impacts us in our everyday life that we try to justify and that we try to marginalize and push down. Verses three through four talk about um, how no one could bind him anymore. This is, they couldn't bind him anymore. So what does that mean? It means he used to be bound. It means they used to be able to bind him. That people, out of fear, out of damage that he would do to others, maybe even to himself, they were able to bind him. But no longer. He can't be restrained. So get this. Chains used to work, it seemed, but not anymore. I want to submit to you that outside forces can restrain evil for a time, but Evil grows in strength if it's simply restrained. Think about that. Because religion will say, restrain that. Behave. Contain. Control. You can do this. You got it. Come on. But you can only restrain the evil for a time. And when you attempt, it actually grows stronger to the point where you can no longer restrain it. What we learn is that even if we think we're controlling evil, it's actually enslaving us. If you've ever struggled with or had a friend or a loved one that struggled with an addiction, you're starting to connect some dots early on that most people won't connect until the end. Restraining doesn't work. Restraining doesn't work. Listen, the law and religion say restrain your behavior. It's crushing and it's impossible. It's why people that attempt religion say, I can't do it. It's too hard. Because religion is too hard. Grace says, allow the affections of your heart to be disrupted. Hmm. Now, that may not make some, a lot of sense to, uh, to you just quite yet depending on where you are in your spiritual journey. 
but you'll get there by the end. And so I just ask you to bear with me as we continue to talk about this idea of grace and how a God-ordained disruption leading towards grace is far different than attempting to restrain the evil of our lives. Verse 5, I'll reread. It says this, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Something else we can learn about evil, and that's this. Evil is relentless and it destroys. So you can say that something isn't that bad, but I want to tell you it is relentless and it is destroying you. Hear this. The the thing that you seek comfort from, if it isn't God, if it isn't God, then it's destroying you. It's destroying you. Now, we know perspective alone won't change that, right? In fact, there's some of you that are on a destructive behavior pattern that that just says, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore, whatever the this is. And you restrain yourself. And you say, you know what? Draw the line in the sand. I'm not kidding. Like, I'm done. Evil is not going to, to, to win here. And yet, you end up there again because it's destroying you. It's relentless. You can deny it, and that's fine. But I want to challenge you as you're denying it. Just, just consider it for a moment. Consider the fact that we unfairly place good things in even ultimate positions. So what I'm saying is maybe you're sitting back and you're saying, oh, I know, right? It's so bad. I, I have friends. I have loved ones that just struggle with things. I'm so glad I don't struggle with those things. And I want to tell you, the temptation to do that is is believing in a lie. You're believing in a lie that in some way you're beyond humanity, (laughs) that you don't struggle with any form of sin. But the truth is we place good things in ultimate positions. We put our friends, we put our kids, we put our spouses in positions that they should never be in. And as a result, they never deliver on what can only be found in God. If you're looking for love and approval, acceptance from your friends, from your kids, from your spouse, if you're finding comfort there, then it's destroying you. Are they evil? Is that what I'm saying? I mean, if we connect these dots here, holy cow, Claude, are you saying that my kids are evil? Yes. No, I'm not. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying you positioning them as savior is evil. That's what I'm saying. You see, evil is within us. It has has the capacity to cause us to create idols. I don't know who said it, but whoever said it was a lot smarter than me. They said the heart is an idol factory. The human heart is an idol factory. And it's so true. We just, we were made We were created to worship. And so we will worship. We were created to worship God. But in the fallen world, we will worship anything that we think we can derive comfort from. And so we pursue it. The word of God says we're all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. We are sinners. Sin is within us. It sounds like such a cheery message as we head into December right? I mean, we're going towards Christmas. Hey, you are a sinner, you know, and, and we're all on a pathway to destruction. 
mean, the Christmas tree is out. This season is beautiful. I know that at face value, it doesn't seem like a cheery message, but I think we need to understand the depth of our depravity and the danger of evil. Otherwise, we'll live some delusional life that the things that we do and and what it is that we engage in doesn't have a lasting impact, but it does. Not only in the spiritual realm, but in the physical realm as well. Here's the reality. The evil or sin that we pursue will lead eventually to an addiction. And I know that your mind immediately goes to substance addiction or substance abuse, and maybe that will be the case for some, unfortunately. But I want to challenge you to think broader than that. You can become an approval addict. You can literally become addicted to pursuing approval from everyone you come in contact with. You can become addicted to lying. You can become addicted to gossip. You can become addicted to food. You can become addicted to alcohol and drugs, pornography, you name it. You see, all of the sin, all of the evil of this world, it leads towards addiction. Because ultimately, addiction gives way to broken relationships that leads to isolation, that ultimately leads to us living ripped off versions of our one and only life and destroying the creation that God intended for good and glory. And that is the enemy's goal. And yet, even armed with that perspective, we lean towards comfort. We go towards what gratifies the flesh. And the moment it doesn't deliver, we declare that we'll never do it again, only to return again. And the cycle continues. It's a path. It's a path that we're on. And some of us believe the lie that we can't get on this path, that in some way the path has defined us. That we're to live every day of our life bound like a man near the tombs. That this is just the destiny of the life that I've been dealt. But that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. God has created you for greater and better things. And his goal and his love towards you is immeasurable. He has a plan and a purpose for you. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Have you, have you, ever, have you ever sat and been like, how did I get here? How did I get here? Have you ever looked in the mirror and looked right into your own eyes and go, how in the world are we here? How did I get here? You know, I sat across from someone who, um, who got into a car after drinking very heavily at a party. He jumped into a car laughingly, what he would classify on any other night as, uh, as one of the best parties he's ever been to. He was completely intoxicated. He killed a husband and wife in a head-on collision on a random evening. They were out on a date. It's one of the most soul-crushing stories I've ever heard. He sat across me with tears streaming down his face. And he said, you know how I got there? One bad decision after another. That's the way it works. No one wakes up with the destination in mind. No one wakes up and says, you know what? I really want to throw my life down the drain. I want to just pursue that with everything I have. No, you make momentary decisions that lead to other decisions that lead to other decisions and we continue down these paths. 
Now, his story was one of incredible redemption. The children of these husband and wife visited him in jail, forgave him for killing their parents, and said the only way that they have capacity to do that is because of what it is they've been forgiven of. And he, they shared with him the story of Jesus Christ and the redemption that could be available to him, and he gave his life to the Lord. And so it's an incredible story of redemption, and yet it is an incredible, devastating story of someone making a series of decisions, one bad decision after another. As humans, the pursuit of comfort for our flesh gives way to evil, and we head down a destructive path. It's the way it is. Verse 6 and 7 say this, And when he, this man, tormented by demons. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. You know, when I used to hear this story or read this story growing up, I, I always had this idea that what this meant is that, you know, Jesus' very presence would cause this man tormented by demons to run and, and fall before him and worship Jesus. But that's not actually what's happening. If you look into the original uh, language, if you look into the Greek, um, I adjure you by God. Adjure actually means I charge or command. So what we see here is we see a man that's possessed by demons running towards Jesus and falls to his knees because he has no other option. That will happen in the presence of God. But as he falls to his knees, he commands Jesus in the name of God. Interesting. It's absurd, right? It's an absurd thought. In fact, it's so confusing. I spent quite a bit of time studying it because there's something to be learned here. Evil will attempt to take authority every time even authority it does not deserve. If you feel gripped by evil, that is no mistake. You are giving over authority to things in your life by the decisions that you make. Jesus, the Son of God, is being told by demons, I command you by the name of God, do not cast us out. <laughs> it seems absurd unless you understand how evil works. Verse 9 goes on. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. Legion. Now, why did Jesus ask the demon's name? Because he doesn't know the demon's name? Nah, I'm pretty sure the Son of God knew exactly who he was talking with right? He knows. So is he asking for our benefit? Like, is he asking so that way Mark will record it? Well, if that's the case, then he probably could have said, hey, Legion, <laughs> right? He could have just said his name. He could have identified it for the reader and Mark would have recorded it just the same. So, so why does he ask him? Now, I've heard people kind of twist the scripture a little bit to say that he's actually asking to give us a model of how it is we go about casting out demons. And I don't think that that's the case at all. Um, I think that's a really dangerous path to head down. Like, 
First of all, Jesus doesn't look at the disciples and say, hey, this is how you cast out demons. First, you ask their name. But he does say, this is how you pray. And he explains a model of prayer. The other problem with it is if you go down that road and say, the way you cast demons out is you ask their name first. Well, then you better have some pigs nearby because that's what Jesus did next, right? So if you're going to follow the model, you got to follow it all the way. So I think there's some problematic thought with that mindset. No. You see, the reason Jesus asks the demon's name is because the demon identifies Jesus's name. They live in a culture where to have someone's name is to have almost authority over them. You can, you know who they are. And so you know uh, their family, you know everything about them. It was a revealing statement to be able to say someone's name. And so he calls out his name and Jesus is actually displaying his authority by looking at him and saying, identify yourself. I know who you are. Tell me who you are. And so it is a display of Jesus' authority on the heels of this demon trying to challenge God. It says, I, in the authority of God, tell you not to cast me out. And Jesus says, what's your name? Tell me. And he goes, Legion. That's right. Because I have all the authority, Jesus is saying. And for what it's worth, Legion, it's, it's a, a whole chunk of a Roman army. It was the way the army was broken down. And so uh, Julius Caesar's time, it was around 3,800, all the way up to we see as high as 8,000, okay? So we don't know the exact number, but we can say this confidently. Thousands of demons, thousands of demons have possessed this man. And then Jesus does something kind of unheard of and very disruptive. I already alluded to it. Jesus gives the demon permission. He gives him permission. That's exactly what it says. Again, displaying authority. He gives him permission and to come out of this man and to go into pigs. But the thing that is disruptive and, and uh, unsettling about it to the people watching is that he doesn't perform this exorcism in the typical way exorcisms were performed. And I know that that's a weird sentence. You're like, wait, in the typical way? What are you talking about? Like, people being possessed by demons and the, and the attempt to exorcise them was something that was around for hundreds of years prior to this. So it's not an unheard of thing. That's how they knew to shackle him and not know what to do with him. But what happens in every case prior and every case since Exorcisms are performed on someone's authority. In the name of Jesus, I cast you out. In the name of God, right? In the name of whatever thing you believe in, if you're just trying to do random things out there. The point is this. For the first time in history and in front of his disciples, based only on his own authority, he says, come out. I give you permission. And so... You see in this moment, based on Jesus' authority, he can cast out demons and they have zero strength, a lesion of them. Thousands, thousands of demons have zero authority in the presence of God. Now, if you heard the story or if you know the story, these demons go into pigs and they run and they display that evil is all about destruction. 
they run off a cliff or down a hillside. There's a lot of arguments as to what that actually looked like, but in either case, all these pigs are killed. Destruction. And it says that the herdsmen fled. They come back. And they're looking and this dude is in his right mind and he's clothed and they probably have never seen him that way or it has been a very long time. They have got to be absolutely blown away. Why in the world would they come back? What is there to see? Think about that, right? You're a herdsman for pigs. All of a sudden, thousands of pigs run into the water and they all die. Why are you coming back? There's only one reason. To check on the man? <laughs> no. I didn't care about this man. To check on the pigs? They're dead. They saw that and that's why they ran off. Like, are you kidding me? The pigs just all died. Why would they come back? Verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They came back to ask Jesus to leave. They're not coming back and saying, oh my gosh, you set that man free? This is incredible. This is amazing. He's well and he's in his normal mind. Guys, we all came just to see this. No. They didn't, they didn't even come to, to argue about the, the cute little piggies that all died. They care about what they've lost. They care about the financial impact of thousands of pigs dying. Jesus is showing a snapshot to us and to his disciples. What is more valuable? Is humanity valuable to you? Is it, is it more important than finances, than, than livelihood? You see, grace was bad for business. So they want him to leave. They're saying, listen, Jesus, things weren't perfect here, but we kind of had things under control. Like, I mean, he was in a bad spot, you know, we get it. And day and night, you know, he'd cut himself and scream and all that stuff, but we were doing all right before you came and disrupted things. We were comfortable. Get this, some of us, have tricked ourselves into believing that we can control and we can restrain and we can live with the evil. We can live with it. We got this. In fact, we'll even, dis we'll even resist any type of disruption that we think might cost us something. No, I just, I think I got it, God. I I'm okay. I, I really... If you just knew the week I had, like, I deserve this. Listen, some of us are pursuing evil. And when conviction comes, in our desire for comfort, we whisper, please leave. Please leave. We tell God to stop making me feel bad. Just let me live my life. I don't want to feel convicted over this. I don't want to consider the implications or the potential destruction. I don't want perspective because I'm enjoying the comfort. It's like we're calling evil good. See? And you always lose that battle. 
We indulge and never, never, never does that evil deliver. Sin never delivers. Don't you see how grace-filled a God disruption can be? That he would love you enough to disrupt your life. That he would love you enough to say, no, don't, don't, don't go down this path. Don't pursue destruction. Like, what do we think God has to gain? Right? You know, I, I'm so mindful of, of when I was growing up, I would respond to my parents as if their sole purpose in life was just to destroy mine. <laughs> what do you mean I can't go? I hate you. Oh my gosh. Like, no, they loved me enough to, to, to put boundaries around me. I understand that now as a parent. Like, oh my gosh, I was totally missing it. But listen, we still miss it with our Heavenly Father. He's trying to give us boundaries and trying to talk to us about living life to the fullest. And we're saying, yeah, but I really want comfort. I mean, come on, I deserve this, don't I? And he's like, it's going to destroy you. Would you allow God to disrupt you? Here's a spoiler alert. (laughs) At the end of Mark, we see Jesus exchange places with this man for us. This is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is doing in regards to the way he interacts with evil. You see, Jesus was stripped. He was bound and he was bleeding. And ultimately, he was driven to a tomb. Not to succumb to evil, but to once and for all overcome evil, to set us free. The same way he set this man free. But he's setting us free from the sin that separates us from God. He's separating. He's allowing us to gain separation from the thing we're trying to restrain. God's saying, I'll set you free. I'll set you free. You don't have to try to restrain that. No, grace will set you free. So can we, can we stop our pursuit of comfort? No. No more than we can stop being human. That's why religion is so hard. Because we can't stop our pursuit. Maybe, maybe on our best day, maybe on our best day we'll overcome that temptation, but even in that day we'll be filled with pride as a result. Right? No. Our freedom is only found in allowing God's grace and mercy to transform the affections of our heart. You are deeply known and you are unconditionally loved. If only we can find comfort in being a child of a God, a child of God and allow that to disrupt everything. Allow that to to unsettle the comfort of our lives. You see, we have this identity problem. We seek identity as good father, good sister, great student, incredible athlete, gifted. The list goes on. But our identity should be child of God. And if our identity is child of God, then that frees the affections of our heart so that we can be everything that he's called us to be in the context of all those relationships. Allow being a child of God to disrupt everything. In fact, we say every week here at Centerway that the text requires something of us. This week, being no different, I want to ask you a question. 
what disruption will I embrace this week? I want to consider, I want to ask you to consider that for yourself. What disruption will I embrace? What disruption will I embrace? Not, not push aside and declare comfort. No, what disruption is it that God has been trying to unsettle, that he's been speaking to me, that others have been speaking to me, that, that are Christ-centered individuals, that, that I just need to say, okay, I'm going to allow, I'm going to allow that disruption. I'm going to embrace it because maybe God's trying to tell me to reroute my path. Maybe I'm calling something evil good. God's trying to disrupt it. For some of you, today that disruption begins by embracing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And stop worrying about what it is that you need to give up as if that's the thing. Instead, embrace the disruption that is being a child of God. If that's you out there, I want to let you know it's as simple as praying a prayer, acknowledging his death for your sin, asking him to forgive you and be the Lord and leader of your life. If you want to pray that prayer, you can pray it right now that simply. If you're with us live and you want to talk a little bit about the decision that you made and maybe understand some next steps, you can click uh, on the prayer request and it'll put you into a private conversation with a host and they can uh, chat with you. If you're listening to this later, you can go to our website and you can email us and you can see some resources that you check out about what your next steps look like. But I don't want this to be an emotional moment or response. I want you to thoughtfully consider what are your next steps as you embrace a disruption. For others of us that have already crossed that line of faith, what does it look like to consider the idols, the identity idols that we've allowed to take root in our lives? And say, God, would you... Would you disrupt that? I'm going to embrace you unsettling me this week. I just want to challenge you to consider what that looks like. You know what it is. I, I won't go through a list because some of you have already thought about it. You're already thinking about how you can't restrain that, but maybe, just maybe, God can unseat it in the throne room of your heart and you can find the freedom that he promises. For others of us, that are living as children of God, that, that are conscious of this. We, we have to be aware that we never outpace the word of God speaking something to us. Maybe you know what evil is and you call evil, evil. And I want to tell you, if that's you, that you need to focus as you consider what disruption will I embrace. You need to focus on verse 20 of this chapter. Because in verse 20, this man goes and becomes an evangelist. He asks if he can leave with Jesus, and Jesus says, no, go and tell everybody. It's the first time in Scripture, in the, in the book of Mark, where he looks at the person that he has just done a miracle for, and he says, go and tell everybody. And he goes and transforms others' lives because he lives on mission. And so I want to challenge you with the disruption this week. What does it look like to embrace disruption missionally? Say, okay, I'm going to be uncomfortable so that the, the kingdom of God can be advanced. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We just declare ourselves available to embrace disruption. God, would you disrupt our comfort in all the right and beautiful places? God, would we not settle for a lesser version of our lives? Lord, would we focus on, on who it is that you've called us to be and what it is that you want us to be about? Lord, would our hearts be broken after what breaks your heart? Would you give us renewed perspective would you walk with us and talk with us? We declare ourselves available. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
really looking forward to being with you again next week. And so we hope that you choose to be with us as we continue in the series, Disrupted. See you next time. Hi, I'm Eric. So glad you could be with us this morning. We want to now encourage you to respond in worship through song. Remember that singing is just one of many ways to worship. So with that in mind, we want to challenge you to spend time applying the text as a way to worship as well. Think about how time spent in God's presence this week will help us embrace disruption, changing the affections of our heart, and finding true freedom. It's a busy season for sure, but let's apply what we've heard and let everything else flow out of that. In the meantime, we can't wait to sing together if you're with us live. If you're watching or listening to this message later, you can find these songs we're about to sing on Spotify. Search Centerway Church and look for our Disrupted playlist. For those gathered on the online platform, we'll see you live on Facebook or Instagram in a few minutes.